owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up, wrapped up, wrapped up in a five pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar. Oh, lovely pussy, oh, pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are. What a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are, you are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are. Most people know Edward Lear as the author of The Owl and the Pussycat. But he was also a celebrated painter, a scientist, and a musician. I'm Sarah Lodge, and I've been mesmerised by the music of Lear's poetry since childhood. I've written a book about Lear, but up until now, I've never had a chance to follow in his footsteps to Ireland. In this programme, I'm going on a journey to find out more about Edward Lear's Irish travels and how Ireland influenced him as a scientist, as an artist, and as a composer. But Lear's story begins in London, so I'm standing here on the busy Holloway Road in North London, where Lear's family home once stood. It was called Bowman's Lodge, and it was a lovely Georgian villa, and at that time, North London was quite leafy. You would have heard sheep and cows uh, passing along this road as they were driven into central London. When he was four, Lear's father, who was a stockbroker, lost all his money in a financial crash. The Lears had to move out of their lovely big house into rented lodgings, and life never felt financially secure again. Lear, too, was the second youngest of 21 children, and after the crash, his mother gave him over to the care of his eldest sister, Anne. So Lear often felt abandoned emotionally, too. He would spend the rest of his life travelling, an explorer and in certain ways an exile, always at a slight remove from home. Far and few, far and few are the lands where the Jumblies live. Their heads were green and their hands were blue and they went to sea in a sieve. Went to sea in a sieve. He certainly from childhood has a romantic view of distant places. Lear's biographer, Jenny Uglow. And he's not alone in this. We, we all share this, really. Places that you read about or hear about when, when you're a child, like the Nile or like the Andes, where you never go to, or, or you know, Greek ruins that you think, that somehow live in your imagination and you terribly want to be there and find them. And I find it touching that Anne painted him when he's nine in a setting which actually could be a wonderful tropical island with a waterfall and palm trees and birds and things, as if, as if she she knew that's where he wanted to be. And it's a great escape. We think that that childhood was quite hard in its own way. You know, it's a travel is a great escape. Ireland um, is only one, of course, of many places that Lear writes about and that he visited. But what do you think Ireland meant in particular for Lear? 
Well, I think Ireland is very important to Lear because I think it's one of these childhood uh, places. I mean, don't know about family connections, but uh, the poetry, the songs of Tom Moore, uh, which his sisters would have sung, the folklore and the stories are something that he is very fond of and he makes enormous fun of later. But it, it's a sort of romantic, melancholy, magical place. And he feels that when he goes walking there. Edward Lear's first job as a teenager was as a zoological artist. He was precociously adept at drawing animals and birds. His brilliant work caught the eye of Edward Stanley, who had become the 13th Earl of Derby. He hired Lear to draw creatures in his private menagerie at Knowsley Hall. Lear became a friend of the Stanley family, entertaining them in the evenings with sketches, songs and limericks. So when they decided to visit Dublin in 1835 to attend the meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, they naturally took a very excited young Edward Lear with them. This is the port of Dunleary, which in those days was known as Kingstown. And it was here in the summer of 1835 that Edward Lear first stepped off a boat and set foot in Ireland. I'm here on a glorious sunny day. The sky is blue, the sea is blue. I can see a flotilla of tiny sailboats out in the bay, skimming the waves like white seagulls. But Edward Lear was probably looking around him as he stepped off the boat, um, because he was amongst the great and the good. He'd arrived in Dublin for the first Irish meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. So he would have gone to the station and got on a, a train into Dublin. And this was a very new thing. Uh, the railway had only been built and opened in 1834. So doubtless the Dubliners were rightly proud when they saw this delegation of scientists puffing in to the centre of their fair city. Leo was fascinated to be in Ireland. The Irish are funny people, and the moment one lands here, it is evident that England and Ireland are very different countries in many respects. Among other odd ways of speech, the common people never by any chance say yes or no. For example, is it time to go? It is not, sir. Or it is, sir. Have you cleaned my boots? I have, sir. Or, I have not, sir. When we asked at Dublin if the Scientific Association meeting was over, they said, Indeed, and it isn't, but the strength of it is pretty well broken. As if it were a revolution. There were lots of things to do at the 1835 scientific meeting. Dionysius Lardner demonstrated a model of a circular railway. There were lectures on fossil fish and the action of light on plants. There were also social events. Today I have the pleasure of meeting another Edward, Edward O'Brien, who's one of the team leaders at Dublin Zoo. Hello, Edward. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm very well. 
So what would Dublin Zoo have been like when Edward Lear visited in 1835? Dublin Zoo was only built and opened to the public in 1831, so it was very new. Not a lot of animals here at the time, uh, as our records show. So I believe that they had lunch, the delegation, and it was between the ostrich house and the great conservatory. So are, are those still there today? They're not here still today, no, because that, those would have been smaller buildings at the time. So what kind of animals and birds might Lear have seen on his visit? There was uh, pigs and wild boar, a wolf, a raccoon, parrots and, and a hyena and also a, a leopard of all things as well back in those days. It would be pretty amazing to see. Wow. And there was also a bear here at the time. Zoos in the 1830s were full of animals that most people had never seen before. Giraffes, or camel leopards as they were called, echidnas, kangaroos. Edward Lear was a brilliant natural history artist and made beautiful scientifically accurate drawings and lithographs of animals. But he also created his own imaginary hybrid animals like the Scroobius Pip and wrote nonsense songs about seemingly mismatched couples like the famous owl and pussycat and this one about a duck and a kangaroo. It's hard to know in this song whether one of the creatures is male and one is female, but the duck smokes a cigar, which in Victorian times was usually a male habit. That might be a clue that this is a very unconventional relationship in which the large lady kangaroo is carrying her much smaller male lover around on her tail. Quack, 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 said the duck to the kangaroo. Good gracious, how you hop over the fields and the water too, as if you never would stop. My life is a bore in this nasty pond, and I long to go out in the world beyond. I wish I could hop like you, said the duck to the kangaroo. Please give me a ride on your back, said the duck to the kangaroo. I would sit quite still and say nothing but quack the whole of the journey through. And we'd go to the tea and the jelly bowly, over the land and over the sea. Please take me a ride, oh do, said the duck to the kangaroo. Quack, 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 quack. the back of Dublin Zoo to see the chimpanzees. I think Leo would like how they're housed now. They have an island of their own in the middle of a lake with some dead trees to climb up and lots of living nature around them. Of course, in his day, um, mostly animals were closely confined in cages. One of Lear's early studies of the 1830s is of a chimpanzee that he met in London Zoo. And it's a chimpanzee that is wearing a, a kind of sailor's shirt of the time, uh, white with blue spots. And in Lear's drawing, it's carrying a child's hoop. And there's something both playful and very poignant about that. Of course, Lear couldn't have known that we share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. But somehow in studying that chimpanzee, he has found his own humanity about it. He has identified with the animal rather than just identifying it. 
people who were drawing plants and animals in this period were really contributing a great deal to the study of these creatures. Often, in fact, as was true of Lear, their depictions led others to look at these animals more closely and to make different identifications. So Lear's paintings actually led to the identification of a new species of parrot. He was also using lithography, which was a very recently developed technology. So we can think of Lear using science in his art and using art in his science. While he was in Ireland, he was thinking about transition. His eyesight was not as good as it had been and he worried that it could only get worse. The thing about natural history painting was that it demanded hugely close attention to detail to get the textures and the colours, the liveliness of a monkey's eyes uh, or a tortoise's shell. So Leo was thinking about becoming a landscape artist. I'm standing outside the National Gallery of Ireland in Merrion Square, and I'm here to see Anne Hodge, the curator of prints and drawings at the National Gallery. She's going to show me some of Edward Lear's sketches that he did while he was here in Ireland in 1835. Sarah, we're in the print room and we have five of the Lear drawings on the table here in front of us. We're very excited to have these works in the National Collection um, because they were only acquired very recently at auction and I had seen them many years ago in a private house in Wicklow so it's lovely that they've moved into the National Gallery in Dublin. They are absolutely beautiful, they're stunning. They are literally postcard size, and so they have a sense of intimacy about them. Um, but they also have a kind of poignancy about them, don't they? Um, what, what's Lear using here for, for drawing materials? Yeah, he's using graphite or pencil, but they're very evocative. They have this wonderful misty quality because he seems to have rubbed the pencil to give this uh, quality, um, a very soft quality, and also gives you the sense of distance. Because in one of the works that you're looking at there, um, this view of the Sugarloaf, which is a very distinctive mountain in County Wicklow. The Sugarloaf is soft and misty in the distance, and yet in the foreground there's an awful lot of detail with the foliage of the trees and um, even two sheep who look like they're relaxing in the foreground. He took the opportunity, as many travellers did, to go in to Wicklow in his jaunting car to do the tourist route. So where can we see him travelling in these pictures? That's right. Well, Wicklow was ideal for people who only had a few days uh, to travel through. And he would have visited all the sort of important um, tourist sites, if you like, the Glen of the Downs, um, Glendalock, of course, which was uh, called the Seven Churches at this time and travelled around and of course as was common they would have stayed in some of the great houses and we know that Lear and his companions stayed in Bellevue which is down uh, a little bit further south um, quite close to Greystones. So looking at these drawings I think I can very much see the influence of Turner who was Lear's boyhood hero but what do you think? Like Turner, he really, he's immersing himself in the, in the place and you get a sense of the quality of the air even, you know, the, the yes. mistiness. Um, but the romanticism, yeah, I think it's there, but it, it, it's balanced by um, very good observational drawing. So he doesn't really stop being a natural history painter in a way. Um, 
because some of these trees, you know, they, they really are beautiful studies of trees. There's one here that's of Scots pines. And you can absolutely tell that that's a Scots pine. There are a couple of figures below it. But I, I kind of link this with his later work on the cedars of Lebanon or mm. some of his beautiful work on of, uh, olives, you know, very old olives. Mm. He used to talk about mystical olives in, in Greece. And he really has a relationship with trees. Yeah. Um, and I think with that particular one with the two Scots pines, which are kind of together they're almost like a couple or something yes. he, he chops off the image so you don't see the tops which gives you a great sense of just how enormously huge they are and then the tiny little human figures are totally dwarfed um, underneath the one that I, I've got in front of me just now is of Glendalough I believe and it's of a round tower in Lear's image it's it's flat the the roof or the top is is gone um but that was replaced in more recent years and it's in this wonderful setting surrounded by mountains all around it's a very beautiful valley with a river uh, flowing through it and of course the two lakes it was a place you had to go to if you were visiting Wicklow it seems he's used chalk or some other kind of medium to to highlight it and so it almost looks as if it's being struck by lightning or, or as if maybe it's just about to rain. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's probably atmospheric. just about to rain is more closer to the point. Um, yeah, it is often rainy, well, in Ireland as a whole, but Glendalough, I think maybe because it's in that valley, um, it would often be rainy. And you can almost see the clouds, the gathering mm. clouds and the sunlight shafting through them. It is very... Um, yeah, very evocative and, and gives a really good sense of sort of the weather and the atmosphere yes. as well. And, and also, I suppose, gives that slightly otherworldly or romantic character as well. So is Glendalough still a really popular place to visit? Oh yes, most definitely. The tower looks much as it does in Lear's image. It's still as impressive and yet it has the little capstone on the top today. This is the round tower that Lear sketched in 1835 in Glendalough. It's an absolute peach of a day. It's idyllic here. I'm surrounded by the Wicklow Mountains. Uh, there are forests of ancient oak and birch and pine. It's wonderfully still and actually wonderfully warm. And I'm looking up at a tower which is extraordinarily old. It is a hundred feet tall and to me it looks like something out of the fairy tale of Rapunzel. I'm here with the poet Jane Clark who lives locally. Uh, how did you come to Edward Lear? Well, actually, I came across Edward Lear when I was about four because <laughs> my mother uh, taught me the owl and the pussycat and it was my party piece. And in fact, my grandfather used to say it, used to recite it. So I think I got the rhythm of Edward Lear on my ear very young. And, you know, I think, I think it was one of the influences in my poetic voice. That's wonderful. And, and what did you learn from Lear? Well, it's a very visual poem. I mean, you know, when I say the poem, I see the owl and the pussycat and the beautiful pea green. But, you know, it's, it's, you can't help but see it. But also you can't help but want to say it out loud. You know, so I think he emphasises, you know, the oral uh, strength of poetry, that it needs to be read aloud and it needs to be shared amongst people for fun and pleasure rather than kept in the books on the bookshelves. 
I think that's so true that, you know, Edward Lear, he was an artist and, and so colour is incredibly important in, in his poems. But he also recited his poetry aloud and sang it. So the Owl and the Pussycat actually had music originally and, and people describe him singing it to a funny crooning tune. But sadly, he didn't write the music down, so it hasn't come down to us. Right. I, and, but still there is music in the lines. Lear, he came here uh, with two of his friends with whom he travelled to Ireland, the Reverend Edward Stanley and also his son Arthur Penryn Stanley. They also went to a place called St Kevin's Bed. Does that still exist? Can yes, you go there? absolutely. It's on the southern shores of the Upper Lake, so we could go there now to see that. Sarah, we're at the upper lake now. And if you look out towards the southern shore across the lake, you'll see St. Kevin's Bed. And they say that's where he spent the earliest days of his time in Glendalough, in seclusion. It's amazing. I can see there's a big cleft in the rock over the water and then there's a much smaller, um, it's almost like a square hole. So is that the bed, you think? Yeah, I mean, they say that you couldn't even stand in it, that you could just lie in the bed. Um, and you can see some people have made their way out to it, which is a bit of a miracle because it's a very sheer rock face down to it, uh, under Lugduff. And the only other way is to go across the lake. So that is how probably uh, Kevin would have gone across the lake in a boat. Well, we know that Edward Lear and his friend Arthur Penryn Stanley went up there because Arthur um, tells us uh, that he said, ascending shoeless with Mr. Lear along a narrow ledge. Uh, he was helped round the corner by an old woman surnamed Kathleen who popped us into the hole, St. Kevin's bed, just like a bathing woman saying all the time, don't be fretful, my dear. <laughs> well, they were pretty brave to go out but on the cliff, weren't they? Because you can see how uh, how near the water's edge it is. Absolutely, yes. They were pretty intrepid. They were quite young men. Right. So I, yes. I guess they were feeling adventurous. And of course, because both of them knew the work of Thomas Moore so well, they would be interested in the history of St. Kevin, which uh, Moore relates in his poem of Glendalough. Right, yeah. So that's probably part of what brought them here then. I imagine so. Um, Lear knew all of the Irish melodies literally off by heart. So he'd be playing them on the piano and singing them. But he didn't just sing them seriously. He also spoofed them. I don't know if you've ever seen these. He, he did uh, comic storyboards, as it were. No, uh, I've cartoon never seen figures of, of all these characters from Thomas Moore. So here we have the Glendalough poem as it's done for comedy by Lear. Would you like to see I'd it? I'd love to see it. So in Moore's poem about St Kevin, uh, it begins, By the lake whose gloomy shore, Skylark never warbles o'er, Where the cliffs hang high and steep, Young St Kevin stole to sleep. OK, and then what we have here is Lear's version. 
by the lake whose gloomy shore Skylark never wobbles o'er. So that was the, all he changed. And yet by changing that, it changed so much. And, and he's got in, in his illustration, there's this enormous bird. It, it's, it's vastly bigger than St. Kevin. Yeah. And it's fl- flying towards him like a jumbo jet. Yes. And I love the way St. Kevin is kind of lying back in this relaxed way. <laughs> and and then, then he's falling in this other picture. Yes, uh, so, so St. Kevin says, here at last he calmly said, woman ne'er shall find my bed. Ah, the good saint little knew what that wily sex can do. And then Lear delightedly portrays St. Kevin being really stalked or, or run after by the gentle <laughs> Kathleen, who is this hulking great lady, and St. Kevin looks quite weedy as he's running away. So we just get a sense of how he everything was a source of fun, and that didn't mean he didn't admire Thomas Moore as well, but... No, I, I mean, Thomas Moore is such a huge influence on his work, yeah. but I think Lear plays everything both for pathos and absurdity. Yes. And that's the thing to really understand about his verse is that, that that's almost a loop. So something that, that has lots of pathos can easily tip over into absurdity, but absurdity can also then actually tip over into pathos. Yeah. And that happens a lot with his nonsense, that if you, if you read it a particular way, then it, it can actually feel very sad. Yes. Like St Kevin and the gentle Kathleen in Lear's cartoon version of Thomas Moore's poem about Glendalough, the Yongi Bongi Bo features a man with a tiny body falling in love with a much larger woman. She is already married. They form another of Lear's mismatched couples. The result is tragicomic. On the coast of Coromandel where the early pumpkins grow in the middle of the woods lived a yongi bongi bow two old chairs and half a candle one old jug without a handle these were all his worldly goods in the middle of the woods these were all the worldly goods of the yongi bongi bow of the yongi bongi bow once among the bong trees walking, where the early pumpkins blow, to a little heap of stones came the yongi bongi bow. There he heard a lady talking to some milk white hens of Dorking. Tis the lady Jingly Jones. On that little heap of stones sits the lady Jingly Jones. Said the yongi bongi bow, said the yongi bongi bow. Lady Jingly, Lady Jingly, sitting where the pumpkins blow, will you come and be my wife? Said the yongi bongi bow. I am tired of living singly on this coast so wild and shingly. I'm a weary of my life. If you'll come and be my wife, quite serene would be my life, said the yongi bongi bo, said the yongi bongi bo. That was David Owen Norris on the piano and the baritone Edward Robinson, who've been playing and singing for us throughout this programme. Leah played the piano by ear, 
So we only have records of those pieces where he invited a friend to write his tunes down. The courtship of the Yongi Bongi Bo is one of only a couple of Lear's nonsense songs where Lear's own music has survived. But we do have Lear's musical settings of 12 poems by his friend Alfred Lord Tennyson. They're self-consciously emotional, quite different in style, and to my ear they're hugely influenced by Thomas Moore. I visited Belfast to speak to more expert Sarah McCleave. Hello, Hello, Sarah. (laughs) It's lovely to meet you. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about Thomas Moore and why he was such a crucial influence on 19th century music and poetry. Well, he really tapped into particular concerns or themes and did so in a very imaginative way. He wrote in different genres, from song to political satire to pieces of recitation, uh, a long oriental romance called Lala Rook. And in all of these, he's writing about liberty and justice and freedom and love and feeling. I wondered if I could maybe play you a little bit of Lear's music. That would be great. I think that his own music, that his settings of Tennyson's poems in particular, are quite deeply influenced by Moore, but I'm really interested in whether you think so too. So here's the Thomas Moore song first, uh, Those Evening Bells, which is very calm and contemplative, and you can hear the church bells in the background. Time draws near the birth of Christ, but listen to those peals of bells in the background. The time draws near the birth of Christ. The moon is hid, the night is still. A single church below the hill is peeling folded in the mist. I mean, not only is there the clear effect of the bells between the two, but, but the technique of it that's going on there. In both cases, you've got strong melody that has a decoration around it and the melody is pulling through the text and the feelings and the sentiment and the reflection there and you come away with a very clear mood with both pieces. I think that's so powerful that that for Leah music is um emotion it is a, a kind of main line to emotion and I think he learns how to do that from playing and singing more. Well, I would agree that Moore is a very clear example of this and that this was 
what made his music work and made it so universal. Yes, I wonder how that would have been in a drawing room. Um, I, for example, Lear, in his young life particularly, he, he travelled a great deal and he had to mix with quite a lot of aristocratic patrons. And as a, as a, a middle-class man, he was in an awkward position because, in a sense, he was sort of in a servant role. He was doing drawing for the family. He was the, the, the painting master, as it were. Uh, he wasn't an aristocrat, and yet he often used to get invited to join the house party, to, to sit at dinner, and then he would be playing with these people and singing with them after dinner. Well, Moore would find himself in a similar position too. He'd often be invited to dinner with who you might broadly describe as the great and the good, or maybe not always so good, but people of wealth and influence would invite him to dinner. But there was a point where there's an expectation that he would perform for them. And he loved doing this, so this was no hardship for him. In a way, it was, it was a kind of a publicity campaign for his, his music too, so he benefited from it. And we're starting to get to an age where, yes, there are these people with money and power and they're bringing people in who aren't quite servants, as you say, but they're being valued for their creativity. Leo had learned the piano, the flute and the small guitar in childhood from his elder sisters. And we know that from a young age he was taken to perform at artists' parties, sometimes comic songs, sometimes sentimental drawing-room ballads. He could also modulate cleverly between the two. In Sweet and Low, he takes Tennyson's dreamy lullaby about sailing to the western sea and turns it into a fantasy of return where the repeated refrain has the tidal quality of waves on a beach. Sweet and low, sweet and low, wind of the western sea. Low, low, breathe and blow, wind of the western sea. Wind of the western sea. Over the rolling waters go, come from the dying moon and blow, blow him again to me, blow him again to sleeps while my little one while my pretty one sleeps
So, Sarah, did you know that Lear occasionally uses Thomas More's lines as a kind of code in his diaries? I didn't know that anybody ever did this. This is fascinating. I, I was surprised by it myself. I was going through these 30 years' worth of diaries and I kept finding lines of poetry. Not all of them are from Moore, but I think the majority of them are. And if you actually look up the rest of the lines, you often find that Lear is saying something without saying it, without saying it directly, even in the private space of the diary. So I'll, I'll give you an example, yeah, if I may. please do. Perhaps the most telling one of these coded references is when he's thinking about Hubert Congreve, who is the son, young son, of a friend. He'd hoped that he might live with Congreve. Congreve was studying to become an architect and that they might live as artists together. But Hubert decided that he was going to study at Cambridge and that he was going to embark on, on a new life. Leo was, was shattered by that, and he, he writes, I cannot weave as once I wove. And you'll probably recognise this. This is a line from Thomas More's Evenings in Greece. Yes, it concludes, Oh, my sweet mother, tis in vain, I cannot weave as once I wove, so will there is my heart and brain with thinking of that youth I love. And when I read that, I thought, you know, this is what he's saying. Even in, in the private space of his diary, he can't quite say that he's in love with Hubert Congreve, but the line from Moore provides him with that coded reference which allows him to say the thing that can't be said, which is that um, he has feelings of a romantic nature, I think, towards that young man. Um, Lear's own sexuality was complicated and we can't be sure, but it seems that he was bisexual, that he was attracted to men as well as to women. And I find it very poignant, I find it very touching when I discovered that he was using Moore in that way. Mm, very much the things that were closest to his heart. Remembered kisses after death, and sweet as those by hopeless fancy feigned on lips that are for others deep as love, deep as first love, and wild with all Regret, oh, death in life, the days that are no more, oh, death in life, the days that are no his life, Edward Lear was exceptionally good at making friends. He wrote literally thousands of letters, often containing nonsense poems, alphabets and cartoons. His friends included poets, artists and politicians. In 1845, he met Chichester Fortescue, who was destined to become an Irish Liberal MP and who would keep Lear thinking about Irish people, Irish places and Irish politics for the rest of his life. Lear's biographer, Jenny Uglow, again. Chichester Fortescue is almost exactly ten years Lear's junior, isn't he? Ten years younger. 
and Lear was in Rome and one of the things that he was doing, I think really to make money, as well as painting and selling his paintings and his lithographs and his views, was um, a sort of escorting young men who were not exactly on the grand tour, but who might have just finished at university, wanted to go around Italy um, and uh, wanted to travel a bit more just needed a contact with someone who knew the language, knew the place and so on. And and Chichester Fortescue is there with his friend Simeon in, in that kind of situation and they're introduced to Lear and they just hit it off straight away. Uh, um, and Chichester Fortescue thinks, you know, how wonderful this man, he'd, he'd never met anybody who was such fun, you know, full of jokes, easygoing, full of ideas and and I think they were meant to be friends from, from the start. One thing that struck me about Chichester Fortescue recently, which I hadn't thought about before, was that Chichester Fortescue was an orphan uh, and he was actually brought up by an aunt who was also Anne. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, she, she took the place of his mother, um, Anne Parkinson Ruxton, and they lived at Red House in RD. So I wonder if there was this underlying, almost unconscious bond between them that they were both motherless boys in a sense or, or they or, could or, be. And right. I think that's why Fortescue felt that Leah really understood him. And we know, you know, their their letters are many and long, <laughs> but we don't really know what they talked about when they're together. I mean, you know, they had long conversations and they talked long in the nights and particular points when each of them is feeling very low or feeling ill or something. And I'm quite sure they talked about their childhoods. In 1857, 22 years after he had attended the meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science in Dublin, Leo visited Ireland for a second time. His friend Chichester Fortescue invited him to stay at Red House, just outside RD in County Louth. So I'm here with Seamus Rowe, who is the Honorary Secretary of the County Louth Archaeological and Historical Society. Uh, where are we now? We're in um, Old St Mary's Church of Ireland uh, Church here in RD. This is actually the oldest church in, in, in the town, uh, or at least the oldest surviving church in the town. It's a beautiful space. It's very, very peaceful. It's a broad church and with a very old Celtic font. Uh, high ceilings, and around us you can see plaques to the Ruxton family. They would have been one of the most prominent families in the area, yes. So the one I'm particularly interested in is Anne Parkinson Ruxton, who was the owner of Red House at the time of Lear's visit. Is there a memorial to her here? Yes, here on just on the left-hand side as we make our way up towards the altar, there's a memorial to Anne Parkinson Ruxton and uh, she was born in Toulouse in France in 1773 and she died in 1865. Gosh, she was actually born before the French Revolution. Uh, by the time of Lear's visit, she must have been in her mid-80s. What kind of a woman was she? 
by all accounts a very active lady um, not only around the, the home and in terms of uh, gardening and looking after the, the plants and trees in the, in the, around the house but also very much involved in the local community particularly in the famine times and after the famine. What kind of things did she do? Well she uh, assisted in terms of collections for the poor of the area she uh, was very active in terms of helping local people to grow food for themselves and indeed, I believe, had a, a project in relation to potatoes. She sounds like a lovely lady. Clearly, uh, Lear really took to her. She seems to have been uh, very, very well liked in the area by obviously all of our family and any visitors, yes. I never saw such a delightful or so extraordinary an old lady. At 85... She has all the activity of mind and body of a person of 60 in usual life and far more of the bright intelligence, absolute fun, constant cheerfulness, unselfishness, good sense and judgment, kindness of thought and deed than usually can be found united in any individual of any age. So were you aware that Edward Lear had visited Red House R.D.? Yes, I had uh, some knowledge of that, all right, and um, we have discovered a, a letter that was written by Chichester Fortescue's sister in um, 1849, and, and in it she says, uh, I wish Mr Lear would come over, for I should like to know him so much and delighted for your sake that he's in London. So in 1849, obviously, Chichester and um, Lear were obviously friends at that stage, and he obviously Chichester was reporting that back to his sister here in R.D., that's wonderful, yes. It's, uh, he met uh, Chichester Fortescue in 1845, so by 1857 when he visited, they'd been friends for quite a long time. And Chichester Fortescue wonderfully describes Lear as somebody who's very get-onable with, um, <laughs> that, that people just seem to take to him. He had thousands of friends, Lear, and he was always yes. saying that he wrote letters to everybody except from the Venerable Bede and Mary Queen of Scots. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he, he had this huge circle of people who took an interest in, in him one way or another. But yes. is there a monument to Chichester Fortescue in RD? Well, there, there isn't a monument, but there is, uh, just as we make our way up to the altar here, just the, the main window behind the altar, there is um, a, a dedication to him. Oh, really? um, just at the base of the window here, it uh, records that it was erected to the glory of God and in memory of the Right Honourable Chichester Fortescue, Lord Carlingford, by his niece, Martha Stewart. So, Seamus, have you actually been to the Red House? No, actually, I haven't been inside the house. Um, I've obviously seen it from the outside. Is it um, close to here? It's quite close, yes. We're on the main street here, but it's uh, about a 10-minute walk from here if you head out towards the Dundalk Road area. Do you think we could glimpse it through the trees? I think we can, yes, uh, certainly. We can't get into the house itself, but I've been persuaded by a kind local gentleman that if I climb this fence, then I will get a view. Uh, but you don't think I'm wearing the right clothes. I'm never wearing the right clothes. <laughs> You're not suitably addressed, madame. Well, I'm going to give it a go nonetheless. Here I go. Oh, I'm on the top of the fence. Wish me luck. Go on, jump, jump. Only you I'm on the ground and I can see through the trees what looks like a very extensive Regency house. Is that right, Michael? 
don't know. There were two houses, the original, and then there was another one built on it. So ah. I don't know what era it was, was speaking of. But you've been inside Red House. Oh, I have, yeah. Yes, yeah, beautiful. Well, I'm going to creep forward, um, ably assisted by Michael, who's helped me get over the gate and see what I can see. I mean, there's, there's some lovely trees here, some of which are, I would say, probably very old. Some of them may even have met Edward Lear, if they could talk to us. Well, Edward Lear clearly spent very happy days here, so he'd be up very early painting, because that was his main job yeah. as a painter. Um, and then he'd have breakfast uh, with Anna Maria Roxton and Chichester Fortescue. Um, Anna Maria Roxton was Fortescue's aunt, but the person who had really brought him up, who was his, his second mother. And uh, the old lady, she was about 85. She was a big age, yeah, uh, I at, at this point. Um, but very active. I think she was very active she in her garden. She stayed active near the end, you know. She was always at something, and she was always doing something in the garden. She spent a lot of time in the garden. So it's a fine-looking house. I can see a, a lovely sort of Regency portico, some big Georgian windows, and the house was full of books and Oh, there was artifacts. loads of books, yeah. When, when the house was sold, the actual uh, library made as much money as the property. Interesting. There were people from all over the world buying books, and there was a, a, a secret wall. A there, secret yeah. wall? Yeah, the whole wall, you could move it, you know. So it was a bookcase? Yeah, it was a bookcase, but it was actually a wall. So it was a false bookcase? Yes, how, yes. How intriguing. I wonder if that was there in oh, the it's, years it's, Yeah, it would have been. It was very old. It's probably still there. But you won't be seeing it today. <laughs> <laughs> Drat. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why Edward Lear loved this place so much and enjoyed his time here with one of his very best friends, Chichester Fortescue, and, and Anna Marie Ruxton, who uh, just sounds like a really lively, really lovely old lady. He said that yeah. she was deaf, but only sometimes, <laughs> which I can identify with. <laughs> now to try and get back over that fence. <laughs> yeah, well, the fire brigade we could get, I suppose, could we? Could we? <laughs> 20 years after his visit, Edward Lear wrote a comic dialogue for Chichester Fortescue, alluding to their happy holiday at Red House RD. Fortescue and Lear had regularly fed two young calves who would come for milk to the house. Lear imagines these two calves as disembodied quadrupeds that are now on one of the planets. Although the two calves are grown up and have wings, in Lear's dialogue, they still can't marry because one of them has become a cow and the other is a castrated bull, an ox. Like the other odd couples in Lear's poems, the owl and the pussycat or the duck and the kangaroo, these romantic partners can love, but they can't mate, a situation that seems to speak of Lear's own frustrated sexuality. First quadruped... It is impossible, I tell you. I cannot marry. I am an ox. Second quadruped. Heavens, what difference can a name make in so solemn a subject? First quadruped. The difference is not in name, but in fact. If I had got... Um... Second quadruped. Explain. What? Or how? 
first quadruped. I cannot to a lady. It would be a gross impropriety. Second quadruped. You drive me mad. Explain yourself. As well as this comic dialogue of the ox and the cow inspired by his visit to R.D., Lear wrote many limericks that feature Irish place names. So I'm speaking here to Holly and Bee, who are both six. Is that right, girls? Yeah. Holly, would you read the limerick about the old person of Dundalk? There was an old person of Dundalk who tried to teach fishes to walk. When they tumbled down dead, he grew weary and said... I'd better go back to Dundalk. Thank you. So, Bea, would you like to read There Was an Old Man of Kilkenny? There was an old man of Kilkenny Who never had more than a penny He spent all that money In onions and honey That wayward old man of Kilkenny Would you like some onions and honey for dinner? No. We've already had dinner. The first form we now call a limerick wasn't widely known by that name in the early 19th century. Leo called them his nonsenses, or his old persons. Although Leo then only posthumously became the limerick man, as it were, his debt to Ireland, its poetry and its music is real and significant. Leo belonged to a Victorian generation that was quite capable of perpetuating Irish stereotypes the roguish seducer, the abandoned lover, the bog. Yet Lear also spoofs those conventions. His nonsense echoes Thomas Moore's plaintive music while at the same time sending up Moore's sentimentalism. In old age, living in Italy, Lear wrote a song about himself. How pleasant to know Mr Lear. It takes a sidelong look at how he might appear to others. Like the rest of Lear's work, it's a celebration of eccentricity, full of humour and pathos. It conveys the consoling truth, as all of Lear's work does, that like the owl and the pussycat or the duck and the kangaroo, we can be singular and queer, yet also familiar and lovable, melancholy and funny, misfits who belong everywhere. How pleasant to know Mr. Lear, who has written such volumes of stuff. Some think him ill-tempered and queer, but a few find him pleasant enough. His mind is concrete and fastidious, His nose is remarkably big. His visage is more or less hideous. His beard, it resembles a wig. He has ears and two eyes and ten fingers. Leastways, if you reckon two thumbs. He used to be one of the singers. But now he is one of the dumbs. He sits in a beautiful parlor with hundreds of books on the wall. He drinks a great deal of masala but never gets tipsy at all. 
He has many friends, laymen and clerical. Old Foss is the name of his cat. His body is perfectly spherical. He weareth a runcible hat. When he walks in his waterproof white, the children run after him so. Calling out, he's a gone out in his nightgown. That crazy old Englishman, oh. He weeps by the side of the ocean. He weeps on top of the hill. He purchases pancakes and lotion and chocolate shrimps from the mill. He reads, but he does not speak Spanish. He cannot abide ginger beer. Ere the days of his pilgrimage vanish, how pleasant to know Mr. Lear.